what if I told you two men decided to go on a journey? A journey of epic proportions. Ones of tragedy and triumph. This is the podcast of Noah Ganotech and Sam Kanan and their journey to watch 30, 30 for 30s in 30 days. We ask you to kindly sit back and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, the 30 for 30 guys are officially back after a long hiatus, a week hiatus. And, you know, in 30 days, that's a very, very long time, but we're happy to be back. I do have some bad news for you guys. Um, my, my counterpart, Noah Ganotech, could not join us tonight for uh, this, these 30 for 30s. He had something to come up and, you know, when the Toomey business and, you know, the luxurious, um, you know, carry on, you know, compartments and bags, you know, industry comes calling. Noah listens and he uh, he's, you know, working right now. So I decided to bring on one of my one of my buddies, a uh, good friend of mine. Um, you know, people mistake him for a small, you know, uh, mammal from the uh, mood of Endor. Uh, Eric Houlihan from Chicago. And uh, I thought it was really cool because we were talking about uh, the 85 Bears today. Eric, how are you? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I wanted to contribute in some way after I heard what you guys know what we're doing. I was interested, and I can't wait to get going. Yeah, I'm really excited today, Eric. I think we got three really good documentaries for you guys today. Why don't you tell the people a little bit about the 85 Bears, Eric? So the first one we got is the 85 Bears, which uh, is near and dear to my heart, strictly because I am from Chicago, as Sam said. Um, so the documentary really just focuses on the 85 Bears. So it starts off uh, years before then, how they, uh, how George Hallis builds the team, how he hires Ditka, finds all these players, and uh, just takes them on the journey through the start of that, through their uh, run with the team, and uh, what eventually happens after. Yeah, uh, I, I was, you know, I was so interested in that and it was a really good 30 for 30 and i'm really glad i get to talk to it from a uh, chicago bears fan himself uh coach ditka so um the next one we did was of miracles of men and i have never seen this one before so it was really interesting to me it tells the tale of the from the soviets perspective arguably the greatest rival or uh, upset in the history of sports the miracle on ice uh lake placid how a bunch of you know college united states kids ultimately beat Maybe the greatest hockey team ever assembled uh, to win the Olympic gold at Lake Placid. Um, and it was really interesting, you know, coming from that opposite side where we, you know, Miracle was on today. I was watching that for a little bit. Like we tell the story of a great upset while they tell the story of a huge, humongous disappointment and, you know, everything that really went into it. So it's, it was a really interesting documentary. And, you know, I'm really glad we got, you know, to see it early. And then the last one we did. Um, was the shortest one yet, actually, and that was um, June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four. Eric, you want to talk about that one for a little bit? Uh, yes. Uh, so June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four. Didn't know much about it before. It takes a look at just probably one of the most eventful days in American history, American sports history. Talks about the beginnings of the OJ, everything OJ trial. Um, the New York Rangers had just won a Stanley Cup a few days before. The Knicks were in the finals at the time. The, arguably the greatest golfer ever, Arnold Palmer, was played his last uh, round in a U.S. Open. And then uh, they had sprinkled in a few other ideas with some baseball going on at the time. Um, basically just probably one of the most, yeah, the most eventful day in American sports history. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting. There are a couple of things that are really different about that, um, 30 for 30, and we'll go into a little detail about that later. But um, you know what, guys? Let's just get right to it. You know, let's talk about the 85 Bears. All right, let's discuss our first 30 for 30, uh, actually our fourth 30 for 30 in this uh, series, uh, and that is the 85 Bears. Now, Eric, you know, being from Chicago, being a Bears fan, after a huge win against the Rams and, you know, everybody talking about how good this defense is, what was something that stuck out to you about this documentary that, you know, you were like, wow, or, you know, you found really, really interesting? Uh, one thing I found interesting, so – Obviously, like from Chicago, I didn't. Obviously, I wasn't alive at the time, but that's still to this day. Everyone in Chicago talks about the '85 Bears and especially their defense and the legendary defense corner Buddy Ryan. 
the mob stuff my dad has told me about those guys. And one thing I always like was interested in is like watching the documentary is at these players, like these guys were known as being badasses, just going taking out two, three quarterbacks a game. And I was just I just always wondered if like these guys were like this in high in uh, college. I'm sure they were, but if Buddy Ryan got more out of them to become like that, those fierce defenders right. that they were. I think that was, uh, you know, kind of set up a little early because, you know, we talked, I mean, arguably the, the, you know, the brain of that defense was, um, you know, Mike Singletary. And he talked about coming in as a rookie, you know, he thought he was all this. And then, you know, when he gets to meet Buddy Ryan, Buddy Ryan's calling him, you know, soft and all this stuff and really challenging the play. And I think, you know, I think they were good players, but I think they needed Buddy Ryan for them to get to that next level to, you know, be successful. And I mean, Buddy Ryan, I mean, he's coached the 85 Bears. He he coached the uh, Purple People Eaters. Like that man knows defense just as well as anyone who's ever, you know, coach football in his entire life crazy to think you know he's been ahead and been a, such a key component of some of the best defenses in you know NFL history yeah like you said I'll put piggyback off that so how he would call these players soft and they come in weren't um and uh was it I want to say it was uh McMichael yeah Mongo. long ago long ago they uh they he was talking to him and his great buddy Ryan called him by their numbers and he would call, I forgot what number he was, but he just goes, uh, you've been, uh, he's like, we're going to find out if you're conditioning. He goes, oh, coach, I got this uh, big. Uh, Mastiff, big, yeah, big, big dog. Who's uh, keeping me active. He, came here and he goes, oh, we'll see about that. And then uh, he goes, um, after just some sprints, he was bending over, winded as all hell. And Buddy Ryan goes to him, he's like, hey, uh, we should have signed the dog instead of you. Yeah, that was <laughs> definitely a laugh. Like, I got a huge kick of that. Also, um, Steve McMichael. Longo, as they called, he looks like you know John Gruden after years of drug abuse. <laughs> that man yeah, has wrong. seen some stuff. He, oh my goodness, crazy. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about is um, you know Coach Ditka. Now, Coach Ditka, you know, played for the Bears. He played for the Cowboys. He played, you know, for the Eagles. He kind of bounced around. He kind of forced his way out of Chicago early on. He had a bad relationship with George Halas, but you know, after being a special team coach in Dallas. Um, he decided he wanted to come back and try to convince George Hallis to, you know, um, you know, let him play and let him coach these Bears. Mm -hmm. And I think he was only starting out with a couple hundred grand as a coach to start off. He was like the youngest coach yeah. in the NFL. And it was really interesting to me because I don't – I feel like Mike Ditka is such a beloved person in Chicago, but I don't really feel like any of, like, the actual players or, like, you know, the coaches or even, you know, the front office really liked Mike Ditka. Like Mike Singletary and a bunch of the guys blamed the fall of the Bears on Mike Ditka. Buddy Ryan seemed to have a power struggle with Mike Ditka. And, you know, Hallis kind of like made up for all of it, you know, after, you know, bringing him back in. But Mike Ditka kind of was like that polarizing guy. I really feel like he's made out to be this great guy and this great coach. But, I mean, people really didn't like him, it sounded like. Yeah, I know. That was actually really surprising to me. Like I always, I'd, I'd watched the documentary when it came out, but I hadn't watched it since. Um, and I knew Buddy Ryan and him had the struggle because I think Buddy Ryan's expecting to get the job, the head coaching job yeah. after, and then brought, uh, Hales brought Ditka back in. And then, but it also seemed like, so obviously those defensive guys, they did their thing. Defense did their thing. Offense did their thing. I think Ditka definitely gelled more with the offensive guys. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was kind of crazy. Like Ditka to this day, still like he's got a chain of restaurants right. in Chicago. He's he's literally the face of the Bears. He's just so. I, I mean, it's almost like I see him more as like a celebrity than I see him as a football coach. Sometimes, like you see him, you know. I always I wrote in my notes that you know he wanted to be a dentist coming out of you know uh, Pittsburgh, and I just said you know he didn't want to be a soccer coach with Will Ferrell. But you know you <laughs> see him in these movies, and you're like he's so big, he's so you know. But people forget he got fired by the Bears. He didn't leave on good terms, like. But yet he's still Coach Ditka, and you know, being from Chicago, I guess you have a real appreciation for that, Eric. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, when you talk about him being a celebrity, I think during the time when he was coach, he was coach, obviously. And then um, they talked about how all these players and even Coach Ditka would do these uh, endorsements, media stuff. And I think. He was more of a celebrity in Chicago, but I think nationally it was more focused. Like the players were the bigger uh, deal than Coach Ditka was, but I, the city embraced him then. And they still embrace him to this day. So right, and I mean, 
it's it's crazy because you know you can't think Chicago Bears without like you know Gale Sayers and Walter Payton, and then you think about Mike Ditka and Mike Gosh. Singletary. It's, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Dick Buckus. Dick Buckus. He, you know, he, it was just so weird because we had a power struggle in the NFL this year between Hugh Jackson and um, Todd Haley, mm-hmm. and I know the Bears are much more successful. But do you think like that kind of thing could work today between Buddy Ryan and Mike Ditka? Could you could you think about a relationship between you know the defensive coordinator and the head coach working like that today? I think so. Um, I think right now, actually, with the Bears, because uh, when the Bears recently hired Matt Nagy for this job, Vic Fangio was on the fence of leaving, thinking maybe he could go get a head coaching job somewhere, and uh, Matt Nagy uh, got him to stay, stick around, and they're doing great things now. And uh, I guess it's just more of like, I'll, I'm going to worry about the offense. You do handle defense. I'm not going to get on you about anything. And it's just more people just doing their job and getting down to business. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that a lot. Um, so a lot of these 30 for 30s that features teams, you know, we, we saw um, four falls of Buffalo. You know, we see it with the 85 Bears. We see this, you know, this as time passes, this team gets better and better and better as time goes on. And then they ultimately hit a peak for the bills. It was losing four straight Super Bowls to the bears. It was winning the Super Bowl in 85. And then we start to see the collapse of that great team and everybody, you know, but for the bears, it was kind of weird because there were a bunch of fingers being pointed and there was no like real consensus of, what really brought down that great 85 Bears team? Some people say Body Ryan leaving. Some people say, you know, <clears throat> Coach Ditka, you know, you know, not playing the backups after um, uh, what's his name? After Jim McMahon. Jim McMahon went down, you know, the next year, bringing in Doug Flutie. You hear about Jim McMahon getting hurt; he was the problem. And then you hear about players talking about. You know, I wanted more money. I wanted to be the face. I wanted to be that big celebrity in Chicago. Eric, you know, being a Bears fan, what, as you watch this, what did you see as that main reason? Why do you think the Bears were ever, you know, weren't able to get back? Um, I don't know. It's kind of, it's crazy, actually, because that same year, uh, Jim McMahon went down, or the year after, they go 14-2. and Still make the playoffs. Great defense still there. The whole team still there. Then Jim McMahon goes down with that cheap shot against the Packers. And uh, I guess you, I mean, you can I guess you can put the blame on Dicka for not going with uh, the backups. I mean, the players talked about it. They had faith in him. They thought if we win, if we run with one of the backups, like we still go farther in the playoffs. And they all trashed Doug Flutie too. Like right. Dan, uh, what's it? Richard Dent was calling and. Uh, with Michael, we're calling a midget, like can't see over the line to check, like see coverages and everything. So I guess, so they definitely put the blame on Dicka. I mean, I guess that's probably the most logical explanation, I mean, maybe. But then, the, if I know Buddy Ryan left, that defense is still killer. Like they're yeah, still doing their thing. I feel like the easy thing would be like, yeah, Buddy Ryan left and, you know, being that great defensive coordinator that he was, you know you would have expected a letdown, but that defense was right there, you know, just as good, you know, as that 85 Bears team. And, you know, Mike Ditka got a lot of the hate. Jim McMahon, you know, was always kind of like injured, you know, and, you know, he's suffering from that today. They talked about that a little bit in the documentary. Um, But I honestly think like deep down inside, I think there were, we hear about how great this team was, you know, off the field and being like celebrities and being like the big time, you know, doing all these endorsement commercials, you know, I think just, I think a little bit of their personality and their ego got a little bit too big. And I think with that team, there were so many big time players that, you know, once an ego gets too big and I kind of think it's the same way with the, uh, the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, I think, Attitudes got a little bit bigger, you know, and I think that kind of tears away out of teams, you know, a team's resolve, a team's, you know, eagerness to win and ability to win when you're starting to think about everything on the, you know, outside of the field. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, I'm, I was just like, you know, we see this more and more, especially as money becomes more and more of a factor in sports. And, you know, now it's a multi-billion dollar business. Like, it's just going to become that more and more thing. We saw with the Legion of Boom after they won the Super Bowl. You know, people start leaving, people start going. Um, and it was just – it's really sad because, you know, that team didn't reach its potential, I don't think. I think Jim McMahon was a stud. I think he's a lot better than what Trubisky is or, you know, is going to be that hurts. recent. That hurts. But, um, 
I just think I, I think the Bears didn't really hit their potential. They got one Super Bowl, but that defense was arguably the greatest defense of all time. Yeah, one of the the strange things for me is like I, this team they still regard as probably the best team in NFL history, and they like you said only got that one Super Bowl. But in Chicago, they still like no team will ever compare to that. Like I'll talk ask talk to my dad now, like because this current Bears defense is right up there. Right, like there are some dogs out there, and I asked my dad about him. He goes, "Nah, that would be as good as the right that '85 team." Like even like no matter how good they do, like I know the records aren't compared now. Down the future, say the Bears put up a 15 and one record, go right. to the Super Bowl, and he's still no one's gonna think of him as anything near as the that '85 team. I mean, I just – I feel like there's a lot of similarities between this year's team and, you know, um, that 85 team. I just think, you know, Chicago is a Bears is a Bears town, and it's all about defense in that city. The Monsters oh, yeah. of the Midway. Monsters of the Midway. I mean, I'm, I, I wrote down some notes of comparison to, you know, the 2018 Bears. They have great defense. Um, they have an offensive-minded head coach, um, and they have a first-round draft pick QB who they put a lot of – pressure on to win early and we see Trubisky like doing this stuff now but Jim McMahon he was a stud like they showed him you know coming in the third quarter I think he threw like three touchdowns on his first yeah, three plays or something game. like that it's incredible like I I think that's just a really interesting you know comparison right now as we you know see the Bears shut down a really good Rams offense you know on Sunday night yesterday so it's really interesting and you know, I'm really, uh, you know, I was really excited about the uh, documentary. I thought it was really good. Yeah, definitely uh, helped me learn a lot more about it. I know people just talk about it all the time, but uh, I got to see more about how Dicka interacted with everyone and how the players' attitudes were. They really had that just, we're better than you. No one's going to beat us. And um, there's one thing I'd like to backtrack a little bit. That's okay. okay That's fine. Saying, yeah. That they said it was Dicka's his first team meeting. With the uh, with the guys, and he comes in and he goes, "Good news, give me three years, we're gonna go to a Super Bowl." And he goes, "But there's bad news. Bad news is Happy ain't gonna be here to see it." Right? Yeah, I that was like, wow. I would love for you know my head coach, you know, hopefully who's not Marvin Lewis, and you know the coming <laughs> weeks. But I'd love for my head coach to come in and do that. You know, you gotta. I mean, they were they were good, but they weren't great. You know, before mm-hmm. that. And Ditka kind of came in, and Buddy Ryan, you know, kept doing his thing. It was crazy. The one thing that really stood out to me, Eric, was, um, you know, we talk about Mike Singletary. And throughout the entire documentary, I just saw him yelling at Vernon Davis on the sideline of 49ers. Like, I just I just saw him being this tough, ragtag, big guy, you know, strong, you know, a real monster of the midway. And when we really got to see them, him, you know, converse and talk and interact with Buddy Ryan. And, you know, you see this Mike Singletary, you know, one of the greatest linebackers in NFL history, you know, crying a little bit, seeing his old coach like that. Like that was, that was really like passion, man. I love that. That was great. Like, and I think that's why they were so successful. They really loved Buddy Ryan. They were all in on Buddy Ryan and Buddy Ryan, you know, before the Super Bowl, put them all in said, you know, this is probably not going to be, I love you guys. This might be my last, you know, time with the team and everybody, you know, got pissed. Everybody loved Buddy Ryan. And, um, you know, that was cool. Seeing Mike Singletary get emotional about, you know, his former coach. I thought that was. Yeah. Just, uh, and so they do that at the beginning. They write, they write that letter to George Hallis to trying to tell him to keep Buddy Ryan. Like he's our guys who we're going to go into the battle with. And then at the end, uh, Singletary, and I want to say it was Dan Hampton, yeah, um, it was. told told uh, some of the other guys like put Dick on your shoulders because we're carrying Buddy Ryan and we don't need him uh, getting mad at each other. Right, exactly. Like, that's how much they cared about him, and to this day that they still go uh, and visit go, go visit him, especially Mike Singletary. That I mean, he said he, Dan Hampton was like, yeah, that's my dad. Like, right. yeah, he's a father figure, mm-hmm. and, and that was really cool. That was really cool to see. So. Um, Yeah, so, you know, Eric, final conclusion, I thought it was a really good documentary. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, And, you know, it's probably, I would say, it overtook the uh, Four Falls of Buffalo for me for being the best uh, football podcast so far. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with that. I I know I wasn't here to record the uh, Buffalo one with you, but that one was, that was a great one. But this 85 Bears one really hits home with me, obviously. I'm going to think that's probably uh, 
probably the best football and probably one of my favorites uh, overall. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Okay, so the second documentary we decided to do um, was uh, Of Miracles and Men. Now, this was my personal choice. Um, I picked this one in the draft, and um, I'm really glad I did. I really, I thought it was really interesting, but we'll get into that later. Um, you know, the reason I chose this was because, you know, I really feel like the, you know, Lake Placid United States Soviet Union, you know, hockey match is the greatest upset in sports history. I just feel like, you know, it culminated so many things, whether it be political, you know, in the world of sports, you know, just entertainment in general, like it was bigger than big, larger than large. But I do think that as American, you know, I didn't really know the story of, and I guess we don't really get the story of how the loser in history, you mm -hmm. know, feels and recovers from that and their, you know, whole, you know, take on it. Um, you know, the history is written by the victors is, you know, one of my uh, history teachers once told me. So I was really interested in that. And um, the first thing that really jumped out to me was, I mean, just how big of, you know, a sport and how good the Soviets were at hockey, because I really don't feel like we talk about that much. Like I was sitting in the chair, you know, about to turn on to Mary going, okay, so we're going to talk about Lake Placid. We're going to talk about that. You know, they were good, you know, one year they were just, you know, the Americans were really bad. They were, you know, really good, but these guys were arguably the most dominant team of all time. Like they won like multiple Olympic gold medals. They won nine straight. They won, 17 world champions, um, and they won six gold medals, one silver, of course. But, Eric, you know, going into this, what did you have to think about hearing it from the opposing side? Were you in the same, like, mindset of me as going, wow, like, okay, these guys were good, but I didn't know they were good for this amount of time? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of did have a good background of this just because, you know, I'm a big hockey fan. Obviously, every kid grows up watching Miracle. And uh, they kind of, they highlight a little bit about how dominant the Soviet team were. Like they going in, winning all these gold medals. They beat the NHL All Stars handily, but and then these college kids are are uh, expected to put up a fight against them once uh, the 1980 Olympics roll around. And I just thought it was interesting, like the bet, like the how it all started. Like even started after World War II, actually. Like how they go. Russia's like, all right, we need to display our strength to everyone in the world. And they pick – I thought it was interesting, like, they picked hockey over all other sports to try and show their dominance, which I didn't – like, which I guess makes sense in the end. But <laughs> at the time, I really – like, hockey wasn't that big back then. Right. And I just would, uh, wasn't too sure why they chose hockey over, like, all the other sports. I think it I think it kind of plays into the fact of, like, hockey's a physical game. Um, it shows physical dominance and prowess, as well as it has that sort of skill and that source of grace and beauty into it. And that's what kind of um, Anatoly Tarasov, you know, kind of implemented. Like, he was the father of Russian hockey. He started everything. He wrote books. He And some of the funniest parts of this documentary were watching his practice regiments like he would have these guys doing bear crawls and stuff on the ice like doing like bumping in the trees and it was really interesting to see how soviet hockey grew after world war ii from a sport where like kids would go and kind of play and have fun to a very competitive high state sport in you know the ussr and i thought that was really interesting um anatoly tarasov was a really interesting guy to me because um it just he created Russian hockey, which was a completely different idea than Canadian hockey at the time. Mm -hmm. um, he was the first Soviet or Russian inducted into Hockey Hall of Fame, and he won nine straight world championships, including three Olympics. Like the man is very, very successful. He created so many things to help you know Soviet players get that leg up on the rest of the world, and we saw that when they would play Canada in the Challenge Cups. And they dominated Canada, Eric. It was – I mean, I didn't expect that one bit. Did you? No, especially because they showed they had Gretzky on that team and all these other great Canadian players. And they just uh, – just they're just so – their skill. Like, they're just could – out. they could run you down, like, physically too. They're so well-trained. And I thought, like, they, they talked about their training 
for the Soviet team was I thought some of it was really funny. Yeah. He had him throw these like small bowlers into a lake or somebody to go swim and get it, bring him back out, did it for an hour straight. And one of the guys, guys on the team, I forgot his name, might have been uh, Kishin, I want to say. Not, can't really remember, but he just goes, uh, it's like, yeah, they worked us so hard, like most of us were pissing blood at one point. Right, yeah. <laughs> it was like they would work all year round. And that's kind of like one thing that, at the end of the at the end of the documentary, they kind of talk about is how hockey wasn't fun anymore. Like it was just like representing your country was like you know going to war and being part of the army. Like you had to do this for your country, um, for the Soviet Union, and there was really no fun into it. You were always hockey. You know you couldn't do anything outside of hockey, and that's why you know some players were trying to push to go to the NHL and you know try to refine their love for hockey at the end. Um, so we we really get into this idea of um, the Soviets versus the world. And um, I really thought it was interesting that um, the Soviet hockey team was just arguably, you know, we talk about like great dynasties like UConn women's basketball and like Alabama football and, you know, the Patriots and stuff. But these guys, these guys dominated, you know, the sport of, you know, international hockey for almost four decades. Like, they were the face of international hockey. And I thought that was super, super interesting. And I don't know why we don't hear about that time anymore. You know, I, I, uh, for that question, I'd go, I'd make the argument that they are recognized as probably one of the greatest times. But, like, since in America, we obviously, the biggest upset in history, take them down. And then, um, like we don't now that's it. That's kind of like the downfall of the cold war and our battle with Russia and everything for just showing like dominance throughout the world and sports, I guess. And I just like, we guess we kind of like won that. And so, um, I guess right now and back then in America, no one really cared about their run too much on, right. on the international <laughs> stage. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Like, I think I am, I mean, I've been, put in a sport history part where, or, you know, I've been taught sport history from the eyes of Americans. And, you know, this, this unbelievable run that the Soviets had over so many years has kind of just gone by the wayside. Like it was really interesting to see just how dominant they were over the rest of the world. And I really thought that was really interesting. Um, so it also, we also follow, um, you know, I'm going to butcher his name. I'm sorry. If, you know, if he's a listener, uh, because Slav Vetisov, or we're just going to call him Slava, which is his name. And, um, we kind of follow him through, you know, his journey as well. And he becomes the first Russian born NHL player, um, playing for the New Jersey Devils. He went on to win uh Stanley cup, uh, for the Detroit Red Wing, Red Wings, um, you know, with the Russian five, with four, five other Russian players that, you know, kind of changed hockey a little bit. And um, we get to see it through his eyes. And that was really cool because we he went back to Lake Placid, which was the first time he's been back since the upset. And um, I thought the real funny thing to me was that, you know, everybody talks about how, you know, pristine and beautiful, like an Olympic villages. But at Lake Placid, it was like the county jail. Like they had to take all the comics out and push all these Olympians into it. And I, and it was hilarious. Just like all these people are living in the jail, you know, during their time at Lake Placid. Yeah, I had no idea that they housed the, all the Olympians there. Like I thought, because now, yeah, like you said, now they, they literally just build these Olympic villages for the athletes and then they're not used after. Right. And then, so then, like, I, Lake Placid, they said it's like a town of 2,500. Right. That's still super small. And it hasn't so, changed And at it all. hasn't changed since. So they really just had to just throw them in what was there. Right. And, I mean, it was just nuts to see, like, they would show pictures, and then they would show Slav and his daughter, Anastasia, like, walking down the sidewalk, and it'd be the exact same thing. And it was it was really eye-opening because we just expect, like, these big, you know, huge buildings and Olympics. And, you know, that wasn't the case back at Lake Placid. Um, so the, the one thing that I knew when the Soviets were good at hockey was um, they actually beat a team composed of 20 NHL Hall of Famers a year before the Olympics at Lake Placid. And they didn't beat them, like, you know, on a late goal or something or, you know, by, like, some fluke. They beat them 6 nothing in America or in Canada, 6 nothing 
just absolutely ran them out of the building. And then we have to think at that time before, you know, the Lake Placid, you know, Olympics, they had a run-in or they had a, you know, exhibition with the U.S. men's hockey team. And they won 10-3 to against the U.S. men's hockey team. And we come to this point, Lake Placid, you know, we got tension in the Cold War. Everything's about coming down to this game. And, um, Eric, so, like, what did you think about that? Do you think they, you know, the storytellers really documented, you know, the political side of this? Or, you know, did they kind of just throw it out there? Because I thought there was much more emphasis from a political standpoint on this match than, you know, people in the documentary gave, you know, it out to be. Oh, 100%. Like, the political tension at the time definitely played into it, played it up. Like, they show in the arena all these signs of – um, at the time, like Russia was in- invading Afghanistan and it was causing crisis there. And then they show all this stuff in the stadium, like all these signs, like anti-Russia to referring to the whole Afghanistan thing. And then, um, well, yeah, it was just the political side really was big. And then, uh, they, like you said about how we played him a week before one of the, uh, Soviet players like talked about that. And he said, we played them not even a week ago. And they're skating faster than us, and they're playing better. is is actually really interesting. Yeah, I I mean, I was crazy, and and the guy who was talking about that was um, Tretiak Vladis, Vladislav Tretiak, um, who was the Soviet goalkeeper, and you know, among many, believe that he was the best goalkeeper in the world. And um, the real big thing that I you know saw during the game was. He goes up two goals in the first period. Um, and now we're talking about the Miracle on Ice, you know, mm-hmm. the famous story. He gives up two goals. One was from, you know, way, way outside, slap shot, that he just missed. Um, and then the second one was just pure stupidity. He, you know, one of the Americans, you know, hits it down the ice. It kind of hits off him. He doesn't really take it for anything. And then it's scooped up and scored. You know, the Americans go up. Actually, I think it was 2-2. We get 2-2 going in. 2-2. And he gets benched. The best goalkeeper, arguably in the world, gets benched by his coach. And, um, I mean, I was shocked. I mean, I, that's like that's, – so let's, that's like Tom Brady after he threw that pick six in the Super Bowl, like, uh, against the Falcons. That's mm-hmm. like benching Tom Brady and going with Jimmy Garoppolo. Like, I, that's just unfathomable. I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Yeah, the funny part about that, and then in the movie Miracle, uh, her books in it when they come out for the second period, and uh, he's not out there, and he just goes to the bench. He goes, "You just put the best goalie uh, in the world, took him off the ice or something." Right. Like that. Yeah. And then just really like played it up, and even like the guys on the Soviet team were saying that they shouldn't have done that, and uh, the goalie himself, he was saying that he goes, "If I was in there, I probably would have." Because I wasn't going to let another goal in, and they right. because they didn't have faith in me, I guess. Yeah. So then the then the um, Soviets go up three uh, two going into the third period, and then the Americans make their run. You know, do you believe in miracles? Oh, oh, and that's where we get the miracle on ice. But the one thing that you know, Eric, I think we need to backtrack a little bit on and talk about is coaches. Now, Anatoly Tarasov, we've talked about his regiment. We've talked about, you know, who he was and, you know, being this great, you know, hockey genius. And then his, um, you know, the guy who follows him up, Viktor Tikhanov, um, you know, he wasn't really well liked by – he told many of the older players on the Soviet team to just retire. Like, their time's done. And um, I really thought that was interesting, like – to have two completely different people from, you know, Tarasov believing and, you know, coaching them up saying you're going to be world champions to Tikhanov's going, yeah, you're too old. Just get out of here. Like you're done. Um, so what do you think about that? Did you think, you know, he was the reason why, I mean, he made a huge mistake in miracle on ice, you know, and do you think that was, you know, coaching? What do you think the miracle on ice was? Um, because I, I think know. I think it's just plain and simple. I think it's overconfidence, but yeah. Yeah, it probably was overconfidence. They referenced that saying like every all week, everyone's like, "Oh, you're gonna like just give us, you should just give them your medals now. You're gonna wipe the floor with them." And then, but uh, to go off the the new coach Tikhanov, they said he was like his conditioning and training and everything way worse than uh, their first coach. 
and he had the guys 11 months out of the year lived in like military barracks back home right when they when they weren't playing and then just he had like a no no excuses if you're not playing the best you're out especially the other players telling hey if you can't do it we can find someone else right yeah and he was just like it was he would you know he was actually really high up in the USSR like because he was this great hockey coach he had say in you know stuff you know that was very valuable from the USSR and uh, that was pretty interesting too because we don't see much of that you know in any other place but you know for this high hockey coach to be you know pretty high up when it comes to the USSR that was really interesting too yeah I thought it was kind of funny that he they he was the coach of the KGB hockey team and I thought it was funny that they just had a separate KGB hockey team right, like, yeah. in the country which I mean, I don't know what reason. Those, those darn Soviets. I don't know who they were playing, but I, yeah. it was, I mean, just crazy. But yeah, if you get a KGB guy coaching you, you're not gonna. <laughs> he's not gonna take any shit. Right. Like so, we talked about you know the Miracle Ice, but the last thing they kind of talked about was um, Slav, and um, you know he wasn't allowed to go to the NHL forever. He actually had to talk to the secretary or the minister of defense. Yeah, the minister of defense for the Soviet Union, the second most powerful man in the country. And he had to basically tell him, I'm going to the United States to play hockey, to play in the NHL for the New Jersey Devils. They initially grant him release, and Slav goes over to the New Jersey Devils and, you know, plays. Ultimately wins to a Stanley Cup with um, Detroit. And they really made that out to be sort of a miracle that someone was able to defect from the Soviet Union and ultimately, you know, become a champion and bring, you know, the Stanley Cup back to Moscow. Yeah. And that was that was a really powerful. The first, they're the so they were the first Russian players to win a game on American ice, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, what was that? The, almost the Russian five, yeah. Almost thirty years later. Yeah. It's crazy. Like I was I mean, Slav, he gave a lot of really good interest, but his story was incredible. Like he was just, you know, not allowed to defect and go to the NHL. And I feel like if he would have come earlier and, you know, would have, you know, built that pathway, I think Soviet hockey, which made them so successful, is that they didn't play in the NHL. They were forced to, as Eric said, live, you know, 11 out of the 12 months of the year, you know, in prison. And they had to work on hockey and train for hockey every single day. And I think that's what made them so good at hockey. They didn't have anything else other than hockey. Yeah, another thing um, is that they talk about Slav that when he was done, like when you're done playing hockey, you have a 25-year military contract that you have to do, which right. is absolutely absurd. And I remember he wasn't going to do it, and they are like, you, that, or they threatened to like throw him in jail or send him to Siberia or whatever. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like that was just so fried because I can't even comprehend that um, because now like we hear of like the Alex Ovechkins of the world who are, you know, a Russian hockey players playing in the NHL who've reached stardom. And could you imagine, like, Russia saying, no, Alex Ovechkin can't come over because he has a military, you know, commitment. That's just so crazy. Like, we never hear about that anymore. Yeah, definitely. Like, the Russians have become such, like, a huge part of the NHL and hockey for what it is today. Like, the way they play is so much different than Americans. Like, I remember I'd read this um, – there's this article in the Players' Tribune. Like, they do this thing, like, how we play for, like, each – like, pretty much each country for hockey. And uh, I want to say it was – Evgeny Kuznetsov wrote it, Capitals uh, winger. And he talked about, like, there's – literally he played how the Soviets were taught to play growing up. They don't they don't play American, dump the puck in and chase it. They You possess through the zone, head up, st- puck on your stick the whole time. Like, it's – you're playing – uh, fundamental hockey instead of just throwing the puck in and getting on it and hoping you can create something off that. Right, yeah. That was and that was something that um you know uh Antoli Tarasov was really big on like, you know, we're not focused on, you know, where the puck is right now. We're focused on where the puck's gonna be. And that's what made them so successful mm-hmm. for decades. And you know, we see that and you know, I'm not a big hockey guy. But, I mean, you can watch hockey and you see that, you know, anticipation for where the puck's going to be. And, I mean, that's just kind of the same thing the way it is in sport. And that's what was so cool just to see, you know, how the Soviets and this Soviet team affected hockey, even though they were, you know, at the back part of, you know, arguably the greatest upset in, you know, mm-hmm. history. And that was that was crazy. I, I mean, 
not being a hockey guy, but I really grew for an appreciation of what hockey, you know, was and, you know, still is. It, you know, brings all these great countries together. And um, I'm sorry that, you know, the Soviets, you know, stomped that night. But, um, but you know, that's what it is. It is what it is. So, I, I mean, I can't say anything other than that. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a breath of fresh air, Eric. Yeah, I guess my uh, my overall thoughts, like, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, it was good, really insightful. And I, it's probably, it's. A, I mean, all these 30 for 30s are great. They do a great job on all of them. But I, would, I wouldn't throw this one up at the top of, like, my overall uh, favorites. Because when, when they first came out with it, uh, I forgot what year, God knows how long ago, um, I thought it was going to be about, like, the American side. Which, like, obviously, I want to see as an American, just more in depth on that, I guess. But the movie Miracle does a pretty good job. But yeah, overall, I was really, uh, really happy with this one. They did a good job. Yeah, uh, my biggest takeaway is, man, those Russian names are very confusing. When they just start throwing throwing them out there, it's not like it's not like Bob or Bill or Dan or you know John. It's like you know Vakaslav Vedasov and you know <laughs> Turkiak and you know. Tikhanov, like, holy moly. Like, come <laughs> on, guys. Get it together. Get it together. <laughs> and that is our uh, discussion of, of Miracles of Men. The third documentary that both Eric Houlihan and I watched um, in the last three days was um, June 17th, 1994. This was our shortest um, 30 for 30 that we've watched so far. And... Um, Eric, what kind of stood out to you, you know, right off the bat? I think there was something really big that sort of stood off to you. Stood out to you. Um, right off the bat was um, the whole OJ thing. They just immediately went right into it. Then they kept showing all this other stuff that went down same day. I never realized – I had never heard of this uh, 30 for 30, nor did I know about the significance of June 17, 1994, and just everything that happened that day was – just insane. Yeah, I I mean, you start off with, you know, the director and every 30 for 30 starts off with like this. You always get like a director's note of like what's going on, why they did it. And um he said that the reason he did this 30 for 30 um about this specific day, June 17th, 1994 was that we got every single emotion in sport happened on that day. Um, and there were some major, major um, things that happened, you know, not only on that day, but over the course of a couple of days. And we start off on June 13th, where the OJ case kind of starts, comes to fruition, you know, and, you know, um, we start getting that outrage. And then June 14th, you know, the New York Rangers win the Stanley Cup, which they haven't done since. Um, and then June 15th, we have more on the OJ case. And then we have Rockets versus Knicks game four um, in the garden. And then we have the U.S. Open first round on June 16th. Um, and then we have the infamous day, June 17th, 1994. So kind of walk us through, Eric. I, I think the first thing that we saw was Arnold Palmer's last round at a U.S. Open. Yes. Um, what did you think about that? Um, what I thought about that was I didn't know Arnold Palmer played that late into the nineties or well, mid nineties, I guess, but I thought he would have been stopped playing a while before that. And then just like the emotions, I guess they're, uh, cause they were saying, I think it was at Oakmont that year, I believe. And they were talking like, this could be Arnold Palmer's final round and just debating on when he made the cut. And I'm pretty sure he finishes first two rounds uh, like 16 over but hey arnie's probably he's probably like 60 something right. 70 something during that what do you expect see i think this really brings up an interesting question like would you eric Houlihan, you know and let's say you're not in any financial situation even though you know you're a hyatt you know um valet <laughs> yeah. so you, you don't have the financial you know you have financial stability so would you have gone to that event if you had a chance would you have gone to Arnold Palmer's last U.S. Open? No financial problems yes. going on? Probably would, yeah. See, I, I don't think I would. If I could just get up and go. I don't think I would. Knowing that would be, I think, I'd like to think I would. I, 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 I don't think I would because. It'd be an unreal moment. Because. Him walking up 18. You know, there's there comes a time in sport where we see the change of the guard and, you know, 
the old kind of drift to the back and the new kind of approach and get ready and, you know, they become the next big thing. And, you know, I don't want, you know, to watch, you know, my idols like, you know, LeBron and, you know, even like Tiger and Phil, like when they're done, they should be done. Like I don't – I wouldn't go and watch them, you know, get destroyed by Oakmont, you know, on a U.S. Open. I think that would just hurt my, you know, my – of what – it would hurt my opinion of what I think of them. That's fair. I mean, but I, I'm a big fan of uh, player like retirement tours. I'm a big fan of those. Well, you're also a Kobe guy, so oh, Kobe's was probably the best. Sixty in his last game. I mean, can't talk on the man. But Kobe's a go, by the way. Um, that in there. But I mean, it's just I feel like Arnold Palmer was such. I mean, he was he was golf for such a long period of time, and for him to like go out like going out and scoring 60 points in your final game that's different but struggling in the u.s open and you know missing putts and you know not being able to put the ball where you want not being that once dominant self that you were like there's also a point in time of like okay like we get it arnold you don't need to go out you don't want you don't need one last dance and that's what i kind of thought was like okay like even though him crying after it was really emotional and it was awesome and, you know, we got to see all that. I don't think I would have gone and got, went and gone to see it. Yeah, I mean, I would just, like you said, if no no restrictions on me, if someone was – if my dad came up to me and was like, hey, you want to go watch Arnold Palmer's last round at Oakmont? I'd say, yeah, let's do it. But I wouldn't, like uh, – that's just if I have the means to. If I don't, I wouldn't shell out money right, that yeah. I don't have to do it. Yeah. Like, it's not, not something I would uh, regret not going to. Right. So then we, you know, we keep that going, and then we start hearing about OJ. Or OJ, juice. The juice is loose, and he was loose on June 17, 1994. Uh, we'll get into the Bronco later. But, so, the first thing that comes out is now they will have a warrant out for his arrest. And the media, it was incredible. It was so incredible. Like, we have the New York Rangers parade. We have the New York Knicks, um, you know, you know, in New York, in the biggest market, arguably the world. And OJ Simpson tops all of that. And it was incredible. It's, you know, Eric, another thing that I want to kind of talk to you about is, you know, when he gets in the, did you actually, let's, let's slow it down a little bit. Do you see any similarities between Arnold Palmer and OJ Simpson? Let's see, um, probably not. I'm assuming you have some similarities you'd like to share. Because I, I think there is some similarities here. I think both of them um, were 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 loved for both yeah. who they were on and off the field. Yeah, or or golf course. Well, they did. They do have a commercial together. Yeah, I saw. So they that. so they, they do have that. something in common. They plugged that at the end. You're right. I um, that. So they, you know, there are these two iconic figures in their respective sports. Probably Arnold Palmer a little bit more than OJ, uh, but again, we weren't back at the time where OJ was big, you know. Um, and I really thought that was interesting because you know, coming from a kid that was born in 1997, three years after all this happened, um, you know, looking back on these events. There's no way you're comparing Arnold Palmer, one of, you know, the greatest, you know, athletes, you know, and, you know, one of the greatest athletes of all time and one of the great, you know, benefactors and, you know, people absolutely adore him. And then you're talking about OJ, who, you know, is a murderer, you know, he's not allegedly, guilty. allegedly, the glove didn't allegedly, fit. but it's just so weird to think about that. Like, now for me, it's they're on two opposite sides of the spectrum. Do you feel that same way, or? Um, I'd still say definitely, yeah, opposite sides of the spectrum. Like, I just wish like there's so much cool stuff like sports wise that happened before we were born, and like the way we can learn about it and live through it is these thirty for thirties, and they do like an awesome job through it. Like, never in a million years until this would have I'd be like, oh yeah, June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four, like unreal day with, right like news sports everything it was crazy but like with arnold palmer and oj like i said they have that one like i want to say it's like a car rental company but yeah i think they're definitely two separate sides of the spectrum there i just it, it was really interesting I, you know i i agree with you like arnold palmer i thought would have been like out of golf by this time yeah but he's you know hanging on by a thread 
Um, and then we kind of get to the the Rangers. Their parade was on um, June 17, 1994. And now you've been a part of a championship parade, haven't you, with the Blackhawks? I, I've seen a few uh, Stanley Cups in my day, three so, to be exact. So what, can you describe some of the feelings to our listeners of like what that actually means and put it in you know, perspective? Yeah, um, so the Blackhawks won Cups in 2010, 2013, 2015, and I went to – the uh, parade slash rally in 2015. So they you so just to start, like my neighborhood, you got train station that goes downtown. Just I remember my mom was going into work that day, and just they were only running like a train every hour. Like she was missed her train, and then I ended up seeing her on the later train for her to go to work. And then just loaded with Hawks fans everywhere. They usually the parade goes from the United Center, West Loop City, all the way to uh, Grant Park where they hold the rally. But that year they didn't do it because it just rained, and they didn't want to tear up the they already tear up the grass for Lala every year. So they had it in Soldier Field, and it was kind of crazy actually. Like my friend, she goes, "Hey, I got tickets to the rally. If you want to go," I was like, "Yeah, sure." So I'd be like up top. We ended up getting uh, these like passes, lanyard, everything like design, super design. It says City of Chicago invited guests. Her dad got them from work, or whatever. We walked in and people were like, follow us. They brought us right to the front at Solar Fields of Stage where all the players were, families, and then us. It was probably one of the coolest things ever. Looking back, red everywhere in the stadium. Like, it was unreal. And just the vibe of parades and every, and it's one of the best things ever. And I just hope you can experience it one day. You know, I'm time. going to. But, I mean, the this – and because of, you know, the Rangers, you know, they haven't won one since. They were, you know – constantly defeated over and over and over again. This was just a wonderful day for New Yorker, to be a New Yorker. The Knicks beat Hakeem, the Dream, and the Rockets in game five. And then, you know, we had the New York Rangers parade over. We had grown men crying. Like, that's the kind of day it was. You had Arnold Palmer going out, people crying. You had the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup, bringing it down. You had Rudy Giuliani with hair. He was getting the people going. <laughs> He wanted the. He was pushing the Knicks. It was an unbelievable day. And then on the East Coast we had that, and on the West Coast we had OJ. OJ. It all circled back to OJ when they were Bob. The best was they cut to Bob Costas like talking before he was on there, like about what's going on. And he was like, "It's our professional duty to air this game, but we're gonna update, update you guys on uh, the OJ uh, I mean, stuff going on." Eric, I can't even imagine having a NBA finals game and that being interrupted for any sort of news. Mm -hmm. Like it, wouldn't that be just, that'd be unbelievable. That'd be mind blowing. But that's what this OJ thing was. Like I was talking to my dad over the weekend. He knew exactly where he was when, you know, he saw OJ in the Bronco and you know, all that stuff. My mom knew exactly where she was. So like, I want, I want to do a Mount Rushmore with you. Okay. This is kind of spur of the moment. Yeah. But I want to know, I want you to list off, or we'll go back and forth, um, snake draft. Snake draft, all right. So I'm gonna, we're going to rank the top moments of where were you when dot, 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 and in American history. Amer American it history. doesn't have to be sports history. It just can be where were you. I will go first. Yeah, you can go first. I'm going to go with uh, probably the easy one. I'll probably go with 9-11. Yeah, I mean, you have to. Um, because that's what I feel yeah. like this day is all about. Where were you when all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. happened? That's what was awesome about it. Like, Because you got so many different perspectives. Um, see, like, there's really only – can't say there's too many where I'd say, like, there's – because I haven't been – there hasn't been too much since we've been alive where there's, like, oh, where were you? Well, just think time? historically. Um. Well, this one, I might not be as big as, like, what other people think, but I actually is, as you know, college football, my favorite sport. Right. Um, and 2013, Iron Bowl. Yeah. You know, I'm going to kick six. I missed it. I missed wow. it. I was supposed to go to B-dubs with my friends, and we went somewhere else where they weren't showing the game, and I missed the greatest setting in college football history. No debate. And I, I'm still livid to this day about it. I missed the kick six. Okay. Then what? Then what, what's your next oh, one? Oh, yeah, snake draft, snake draft. Um, we get it. We go, you know, I mean, you, 
obviously throw this in there. We're not going to count that. Uh, Miracle, definitely yeah. were you when Miracle on Ice right. happened. So that will be my number two. Okay. Um, let's For me, um, I'd probably say – where were you when NC State beat yeah, I um, Five Slam and Gemma um, and the Houston Cougars? Um, and then my third one, I'm going to say, where were you when you heard about Watergate? Richard Nixon. Okay. Watergate, Watergate. Yeah, well, I guess keeping it in the historical political sphere, you go JFK. Yeah, where were you, JFK? Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, and then, and then you get one more. My last one. Um, I mean, it's over a period of time, but like, just like I guess the ending of it, like, you know, another play into three, three, four days in October. Red Sox coming back in yeah. the ALCS in 04. Mm-hmm. Just, I know that's been a whole. That's like a whole, uh, pretty much two week thing, but just that game seven would have been insane. Right. Um, and my last one's going to be an easy one. You left me an easy one. You know what? I can nip along at the end. <laughs> a little dessert for the big fella. Uh, I'm going to say when we landed on the moon. When we landed on the moon. Wow. <laughs> so, so that was our quick little Mount Rushmore. So now we're going to get back into it because that was something that was fun. I enjoyed myself here with my man Ewok. So, um, now, kid. so one thing that I thought was interesting, um, was, you know, also we had in Chicago, we had the World Cup in Chicago. Yes, um, we had Ken Griffey Jr. hitting his 30th home run before June 30th. Um, and, you know, then we go back to the Bronco. And, you know, the media coverage, the media firestorm that this complete, it was on major news on every single channel. It set, you know, major, like, records for viewings. It was bigger than the Super Bowl. More people tuned in to OJ's buddy driving a white Bronco in Los Angeles than the Super Bowl. Now, Eric, I got a question for you. What would you have done if you were the caller on the phone trying to talk OJ out of suicide? Could you imagine that? I couldn't imagine, but I honestly think the caller, he played it right. Like, he said all the right things. He did. Like, hey, don't do it, man. People love you. Like, toss the gun out. And then him saying, like, you don't want to do this and all. I mean, it's really what you can say. Like, try and tell him how much, like, people care about him and everything, no matter what the – like, how right. bad the situation I is. I mean, like, they, they had yeah. his head coach from USC call him. Like, that – that was incredible. And then you just see everything just in the world kind of stopped and everybody kind of turned and watched OJ go down, go to his house, you know, and, you know, everybody stopped, was looking, people were running. It was like, I, I, I can't compare it to anything. I don't think I've ever seen, or, you know, probably will ever see. It was incredibly, it was incredible to watch this, all with all like the live broadcasting at the time and what it meant to not only the sports world, but you know, America and the world in general about how big of a story this was. Yeah. It was crazy. Like just going down the interstate, they cars pulled over bridges. Everyone had was waving to OJ. Everyone clearly was team OJ. on Right. They did not want it to beloved, especially out in LA. And then just uh, when he's pulling through his neighborhood, people are just sprinting down to going outside his house, trying to see, get a glimpse of what happened. Like, yeah, I could never imagine anything like that happening again. It's just so weird. Like just in one day we've had, you know, all these wonderful big time things. Like people don't talk about the world cup in Chicago. Like that was barely mentioned. Bill Clinton was there. Bill Clinton. I mean, yeah, Bill Clinton and Hillary were there. Um, So, I gotta, I gotta tell you something. When we look back on this day, um, the Rangers haven't won a um, Stanley Cup since. Mm-hmm. The Knicks blew a th- uh, blew a three two lead in the finals. Haven't been back since. Um, what else? Arnold Palmer last career, you know, golf golf outing at the U.S. Open. Um, OJ is OJ, and we know exactly what yeah, happened. Yeah, we know everything about OJ. Were the things that happened on this day, are they cursed? Cursed? Uh, maybe. I don't know, because like you said, the Rangers haven't been back. They Well, they've gone to the Stanley Cup uh, a few years ago. They didn't win. They got swept, I want to say, by the Kings. Knicks haven't been there. Knicks have stunk since. Um, Arnold, the Mar- Palmer. Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer. 
RIP recently just passed yeah. away, actually. Yeah, um, rest in peace, rest in peace. And then, uh, I mean, OJ, he's didn't he? He just got released. He right? just got From released. His, yes. Yeah, and then uh, OJ is a free man. OJ did say he wanted to get into podcasting. Oh man! Yeah, so we got that. OJ, OJ. if you are uh, <laughs> listening, and we are on Apple, uh, Apple Podcast, we'd love to have you on. We'd love to have you on to OJ. discuss. OJ, I'll get you a nice ice cold glass of OJ too. Um, so we'd love to discuss it with you. Now, Eric, the one thing that kind of stood out to me was that all of these documentary was was just clips. There were live broadcast clips. There was no interview. Mm-hmm. There was nothing like added onto it. It was just the magnitude of that day meant so much. And so many things were going on that they didn't have to interview anybody. Like the magnitude of what happened on that day, June 17, 1994, was explicit just because of just through you know spoken word and you know television and all that you know all that media which was crazy i mean I, this might be the only 30 for 30 where there were no interviews in the entire thing did that strike you at all uh, i did yeah just basically said the story all these stories were so big of itself that they can they don't need anyone to explain it like you get it no matter what they can tell the story on their own and I mean, definitely put like just that they was able to tell so much in just not even in a full hour right. of uh, of uh, airtime. It was crazy. I uh, I was just you know I just I can't think of any day like that. Just of every of how all the big cities were involved: Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. They were all involved. Like it was just kind of like the perfect storm. It really was. It was something that you go, wow, like this. Where were you on that day? And that's what, you know, this podcast or, you know, this documentary was really all about. You know, it was wherever you were in the country, there was almost like there was something going on on June 17, 1994. Yeah, no doubt. I'm definitely going to have to pick my dad's brain on that day to see where, what he was up to and what his thoughts and everything were. Because, that, that I mean, like you said, like I can never imagine anything, a day that eventful ever happening again. Right. Yeah. It's just it's. It's unfathomable. Like, it's just, it's incredible. Okay, so now we've come to the end. Um, So what we're going to do, Eric, is you are going to rank your three podcasts, or not three podcasts, your three documentaries, and um, we are going to see how our lists match up. So what were your three? So I would uh, rank them, number one, 85 Bears, um, just... Like I said, I know like just know too much about it. I know the story too well. Like it's just just a great story. The the team is insane. Like just learning more through about that was really big. So definitely eighty five bears number one. Number two, I'm gonna go with June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four. Didn't know much about it. Um, didn't know anything really about that day. And this just like like I said, through like just one hour, I was able to learn so much with just not even interviews of people giving their their uh, point of view from it. And then uh, number three um, of Miracles and Men, the, the Soviet side of the Miracle on Ice upset. Uh, I, not to dog on it, great film, no doubt, but I think these uh, other two were uh, notch above it. Yeah, and um, I mean, even with Noah's list and my list last week, you know, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I think the 85 Bears, I think, was the best out of the three we watched. Um, I think it'll probably be, you know, maybe around the top five for me at the end when it's all said and done. Um, I think my second one, I think is going to be a miracles of men. Mostly because I was just so intrigued and, you know, it was a little hard following all the names and, you know, all the, you know, but it was just really intriguing because, you know, I not being a hockey guy, just like how dominance and success kind of like aren't apparent. Like that's Mm -hmm. incredible. Um, And then, you know, barely behind it, like, you know, barely behind it, maybe even almost like jumping on the back of a Miracles of Men is June 17, 1994. Great little, you know, documentary, one that I think a lot of people should sit down and watch. It's really informative, especially with the millennials, you know. Millennials, I think, sit back, watch that, really taking the power of what OJ was, but also sports was, you know. It was a great day for sports, and we did, you know, feel all those great emotions. So I was really excited about that. I think we've had three great podcasts, six great po- or six great documentaries so far, and um, yeah, I'm really excited. Um, our next three, um, Eric will probably be in Chicago when we discuss. So 
Uh, we're going to have Eric back sometime, you know, hopefully soon. Love to be back. Um, our next three are Surviving Advance, the story of the 1983 NC State Wolfpack, and Coach Jim Valvano and their uh, magical run um, to the national championship. The next one is um, is uh, the story of John Daly. Um, hit it hard. The story of John Daly. Um, I've already watched it. It's awesome. It's really good. It's going to bring up a lot of good uh, talking points. And then the last one, which I had not seen, um, was Nature Boy. And that is the story of Ric Flair, professional wrestler, um, and, you know, a bigger or larger-than-life personality. And that's what all three of these things are kind of grouped together for, big personalities, whether that be Jim Valvano, um, John Daly, or Ric Flair. They all have their own unique personalities, and, you know, they also went through all their hardships and you know at times. So um, I'm really excited to podcast about that. I think Noah will be back on for that. Um, so if you miss Noah and you know hate me bloviating um, and talking, I mean everybody misses Noah, but um, he will be back. We will get that out to you guys as soon as possible. Thank you again for listening. Uh, and uh, Eric, what's your last, anything last thing to say? Last thing to say, I just want to thank you on for having me. You've got I. The Jimmy V one is probably one of my favorites, and I wish I would be here to comment on that. But, hey, what are you going to do? But uh, I'd love to be back in the future. Awesome, Eric. You did a great job today. Thank you, my man. Thank you. Appreciate it.